As Brother Garrett just read just a few moments ago, sometimes when you come to an event or to a passage of Scripture, you're often made to wonder, what do these things mean? I will tell you for myself personally, as I go through my daily Bible study and even preparing for classes, I will often find a passage of Scripture and ask the question, what does this mean? What is the the writer trying to say? And then even beyond that, as you read it, what does this passage mean in the sense of application? How does it apply to our lives? And so as we approach each time, I try to remind you that the types of questions that we address, some are textual, some are topical, and some are practical. And as you think about these three types of questions, tonight we're going to deal with one which is, in a sense, textual from John chapter 9. It's also going to be topical in the sense that it's going to ask a question about the Sabbath. And then it is also going to be practical and we ask the question, what does that really mean with regards to us? And so we're going to address those kinds of questions and these applications of biblical passages. Let's begin, first of all, with our first question. In John chapter 9, Jesus was accused of being a sinner for healing on the Sabbath. What could be scripturally done on the Sabbath? For just a moment or two, I'd like for you, if you want to flip in your Bibles, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but just to make you aware of this. Jesus was proceeding out of the temple. That's the end of John chapter 8. He comes by and there's a man sitting there who is blind and the disciples are going to ask Jesus a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Their common idea was that if a man had some great travesty in his life, it was because he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. And Jesus answers, neither. The reason why is because this man will have demonstrated in him the glory of God. And what Jesus is going to do is to heal this blind man. Jesus reaches down and makes a little spittle and then tells this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. When he comes back seeing, they bring the man to the Pharisees and the Pharisees immediately accuse Jesus of being a sinner because he has healed this man on the Sabbath. Particularly in John chapter 9 and verse 24, it says... We know that this man is a sinner. So as we begin, I want to emphasize just because someone is accused of violating the law does not mean that they have. There may be someone who accuses you of violating the law when in reality you have not done so. It may just be their opinion. So many times, and you look in the Bible, and people accuse Jesus of sin... They are accusing Jesus not of violating God's law, but violating the traditions of the elders. We know that Jesus, according to Peter, did no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. 
In fact, John 8 and verse 46, Jesus asked the question, Which of you convicts me of sin? Obviously, if they knew of something that Jesus had done that was sinful, they would say, here's what the law says, and here's how you violated it. But the truth is, they could not do that. Talking about the traditions of the Pharisees, they treated their traditions on the same and uh, held them in as high esteem as they did God's Word. In fact, even above it. If you go to Matthew chapter 15 in verses 1 through 9, it says that they asked the question of Jesus' disciples, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus' response in verse 3, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? If you compare this with what Mark's account records, they had a number of different laws with regards to the washing of bowls and dishes, but it wasn't just that. They wouldn't allow someone to help their mother, their father, if they called the portion of their inheritance as Corbin. And when you get down a little bit further, he said in verse 7, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When you go to John chapter 9 and the accusation is leveled against Jesus that he is a sinner, you can't point to the Old Testament and say, Jesus did what the law said not to do. What you can see is that Jesus violated the traditions. Well, that raises the question is, what did their traditions say? And there is a book or a collection of writings known as the Mishnah. And because most of us don't have any acquaintance with Jews, we don't know a lot about the Mishnah. It's a very interesting reading. In fact, I spent quite a bit of time reading the Mishnah this past week. And I've got to tell you, some of it's funny. Uh, As you start reading some of the things about uh, the Sabbath... Uh, But I just want to draw attention to one section. This is chapter 7 and section 2. And this was the easiest collection that I could give for you. Here's what it says. The main classes of work are 40, save one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, Building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, or taking off from one domain into another. These are the classes of work, 40 save one. So if you want to know specifically what they said with regards to the Sabbath, this is just one section. 
that addresses that. But I thought it summarized their views pretty well. You can imagine if you're like some of us, you have a hole in your pocket, you can't sew two stitches. You could sew one, but you can't sew two. You see, their laws were so um, specific where God's had not been. But we're not interested in what man's law says. We're interested in what God's law says. And the word Sabbath is found 135 times in the Bible. And for the next few minutes, what I want to do is present to you some of the details of what is found regarding the Sabbath in the Bible. The first one is, it was given in Exodus chapter 16. Sometimes people think the Sabbath goes all the way back to the creation of man, but the first mention of Sabbath is in Exodus 16 and regard the collection of manna. I'm not going to read all of this. I want to put it on the screen in case some of you want to take notes. They were sent out on the Sabbath day or the Friday, the sixth day, and uh, that Friday they were to gather twice as much. The purpose being so that they would be able to have some to cover the Sabbath day. And they were told to keep it until morning. Contrary to the other days, it did not rot, it did not stink. And so Moses told them, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord, and you will not find it in the field. Now verse 26 Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there shall be none. And uh, when you get particularly to verse 29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you the sixth day, bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested the seventh day. You go just forward four more chapters to chapter 20 and God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. When you get to verse 8 of this context, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And then he goes on to say that God made the earth in six days. God's law was they were to respect this day, not to work on it. There were penalties for violating the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 31 we are told that everyone who profanes the Sabbath day is to be put to death. And then he goes on to say, Work shall be done six days, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. When you get to chapter 15 of Numbers, you have a man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. My assumption is he was picking up sticks to make a fire, but I, we don't know that. They didn't know, even though God had already said what you ex expected to do is to put this man to death, 
They wanted to make sure that God really meant this. Verse 34, they brought him to 33, they brought him to Moses and Aaron. They put him under guard, verse 34, until explaining what should be done to him. Verse 35, the Lord said to Moses, this man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. You say, they took that pretty seriously. That's because God told them to. And that included something as simple as making fire. Exodus 35.3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. That was a rule, that was an obligation that they had. But now let's look at Israel. What did Israel do? Quite frequently, Israel was guilty of violating the Sabbath day. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 and 24, Jeremiah points out to them that you should take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Same thing in verse 24. Evidently, the people were going outside the city. They were bringing things in. They were treating it as if it was a normal day of work. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Nehemiah now. And among the many things that was going on during this period of time, one of them was a severe lack of respect for the Sabbath day. He said, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves, loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. And then he goes on to talk about foreigners. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you have done that you profane the Sabbath day? I don't think it takes somebody too brilliant to recognize they're not acting like people who respect this day. Nehemiah goes on to explain in verses 18 and following that that's what brought the disaster on them to start with because they didn't respect God's law. In verse 20, he talks about the merchants who encamped outside the gates. And he said, what I did, he said, I told them shut the gates. As you go on, he pointed out to them, he said, he went outside the gate and he told them, if you guys don't stop this, we're going to come out and get you. And uh, so uh, they came no more on the Sabbath day. You recognize they did not respect it. In Amos chapter 8 and verse 5, these people were wanting the day to be over so they could get back into business. When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain in the Sabbath? that we may trade wheat. But you see, the purpose of the Sabbath day was for the benefit of man and animals. God wanted there to be a time of rest, cessation, so that the body could be able to recuperate itself. There needed to be a time so the animals could recuperate themselves. In Mark chapter 2, 27 The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man 
is also the Lord of the Sabbath. God didn't design the Sabbath day and say, okay, let's make man do this. God designed man and he said he designed the Sabbath day for man's benefit. Now, they're accusing Jesus of sinning on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus does in this context is to point out, not only here but in Matthew's account, that they took care of things on the Sabbath day. He said, what man is there among you who has one sheep if he falls in a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold on it and lift it out? In other words, you have an animal that gets hurt, it's in a a pit, you, you draw it out. It was lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. Matthew 12, 10, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Verses 12 and 13 Of how much more value is a man than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And there was a man there. He stretched out his hand. He made it whole. In chapter 13 of Luke, verses 15 through 16, he talked about the healing of a woman there on the Sabbath day. Jesus did not refrain from helping people on the Sabbath day. So what you come to is it was lawful to do good, to render aid and assistance, but it was not lawful to work. So when you go to John chapter 9 and you ask the question, did Jesus sin? No, he didn't sin. Was the things that Jesus was accused of, was he guilty? Not of violating God's law, but he did violate the traditions of the elders. And their traditions, they had raised to the level of God's law, and they were not God's law. And so, in the answer of the question, it was a day that God respected them. Now, I know someone's going to say, well, are we under the Sabbath law today? And the answer is no. The Sabbath was a part of that Old Testament law and Old Testament system. It was not given to everybody. It was given to the Jews Exodus 16 and following. And so we recognize we do not live under that same law today. Many of the principles do remain, though. One is that of being holy and giving God His time in our worship. There's also the principles of recognizing that God expects there to be some time for a man to rest. Mark 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Come apart and rest a while. It's good for people to take rest to recoup their energy for their body. Question number two. Please explain when, why, and how a benevolence. That's a really good question. That's a question which I think most of us would struggle with at some point in our lives. Many of us who work in and around the church building find ourselves often faced with this question. The elders and those deacons that have been put in charge of that wrestle with this issue as well. You might find it interesting that the word benevolence does not occur at all in the New King James Version. It only occurs one time in the original King James Version, and the context 
makes it clear it's not the way we use the word benevolence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife the due benevolence and likewise the wife to her husband. The new King James points out that's the affection that a husband should have for his wife and the wife should have for her husband, the intimacy that's involved there. I don't think most of us would think of that in terms of benevolence. But the Bible does address the idea of compassion coupled with action. For instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I know you're very familiar with this parable, Luke chapter 10, verse 33, when the certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He felt for this man. He was beaten. He was left there to die. I think most of us, if we came upon somebody who had been beaten up by some robbers, we'd want at least to help them up, maybe try to bandage their wounds, try to be able to provide a little bit of first aid to help them. That's the idea of caring and compassion and action. The question was, when do we do that? Well, if you start thinking of when, there are some biblical principles. The first is when there's a need. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, you see what he needs. It's not a matter of guessing. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, Paul says, And when I was a present with you and in need... Or James 2, verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, you can look at somebody and see if they don't have enough clothes to wear. You can look and see if they don't have enough food to eat. There's got to first be a need in order for a person to have a compassionate action towards someone else. But a second part of that is, is there must be an ability to meet that need. If I were to ask you how many homeless people are there in the United States, I have no idea. Do I have the ability to provide every one of them a place to stay? No, I don't have that ability. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 says... For if there's first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and that you burdened. God has never asked someone to take the food out of their mouth to give it to somebody who has plenty of food. You see, there has to be a person in need, but you also have to have the ability to provide for that need. Well, the second part of that question is why? Well, first of all, we reap what we sow. Proverbs 19.17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. He will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 21.13 and 26, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. He who creeps covets greedily all day long but the righteous gives and does not spare 28 27 he who gives to the poor will not lack but he who hides his eyes will have many curses 
You see people who are in need, and if you don't help, you show no mercy, then you shouldn't expect mercy. And this affects our eternity. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus gives a picture, a parable if you will, of a shepherd separating his sheep from the goats. Puts the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. And then he goes on to explain that the purpose for the separating of these was for those who are going to be allowed to enter into the joys of the Lord and those who are going to be denied. The basis of their denial or the basis of their entering in was based upon benevolence. Jesus used a situation, verses 34 through 40. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Of course, they're going to answer, Lord, when do we see you in those conditions? He said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren. You see, God expects us, if we have the ability and there's someone in need and we know that we can relieve that, that God expects us to do something and that's going to affect whether or not we're going to go to heaven. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them be do good, they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Now listen to verse 19. Storing up for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Yes, people who have money, people who have possessions can and will go to heaven when they use that for good things. Now, here's where I think most people struggle. How do we do that? You can give personally and individually. The Good Samaritan saw a man and there was an immediate need. He didn't have time to go back and to ask a committee or someone say, what can we do to help this man? He personally got involved. He individually got involved. Contrary to what the priest and the Levite did. There are times, there's places when we need individually and personally to get involved in helping somebody else in need. One may also choose to give to the Lord via the church. Sometimes needs are not immediate. That is, they're not, they've not got to be met in the next few hours. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and following, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and showed that by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now notice how they accomplished that. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, is it, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so also you must do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul says what you do, you take and you gather the money every first day of the week. So then when a need arises, you have funds to be able to provide for those needs. There's some benefit in that. God gets the credit in doing this. You know, Matthew 5, verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God even prepared a plan for the way this can be accomplished. In Acts 6, verses 3 and 4, He was told them to seek out seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The apostles said, there can be men who can take care of this task, just like there are here at this congregation, men assigned to take care of that task. But here's the question I always hear. What if somebody takes me? What if somebody lies and in so doing they get help and they didn't deserve it? That's between them and the Lord. The Lord will have to ultimately address that. Were there people who took advantage of Jesus? Yes, Judas took out of the money bag. Judas was a thief. But that didn't stop Jesus from doing the good that he did and using even the funds that they had for feeding those who were hungry and those who were in need. I think questions are good. They cause us to think about what God has said and how to apply it and what to do in situations And God's Word has a practical application in our lives. And one of the greatest is, what must I do to be saved? It's a challenge that all of us must face at some point in our life. Do I become a Christian? Do I make the commitment to the Lord that I'm going to be His servant for the rest of my life? I don't know if some, if all of you who are listening now have made that decision. I'm aware of some that have not. I wish that I had the words to, to motivate you, to encourage you, to inspire you to want to do that and do it tonight. But I am fearful that many of us walk through mindlessly in this world and we've allowed the problems, the difficulties, the challenge of this world to keep us from being what God wants us to be. And we can't allow that to bar our souls from making to eternity. If you'll prepare now, we're going to sing the song, Nothing But the Blood. And if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and sing?